What's up everyone? Today I have one of the most famous and most successful poker players of all time. He's battled through the ages. He's been playing for decades and has a lot of wisdoms to share. Daniel Negreanu with 50 million in caches just in tournaments. He's probably won a lot more in cash games. We talk about how the game has changed over time. We also talk about some tips for modern day strategy and how to make the game better, the future of poker. Tune in to find out. What's up, Jungle Man? Long time no see. Yeah, it feels like it's been a while, but I'll be seeing you soon in December. I'm sure you're in Las Vegas playing, aren't you? I'm going to start playing. I took a little break after Roswitha, but I'm going to be playing these little daily high rollers at the Aria until the win, and they have that big... Uh, tournament there so and then there's like this pgt championship that's kind of what i'm trying to qualify for right now what's the pgt championship so the pgt the the pgt tour is something created by poker go which is basically um taking all 10k and above buy-ins and rewarding points for them uh with a couple exceptions they don't do some events but they have all the tritons and all the big stuff and so the top 21 players who you know accrue the most points they get to play in the in on december 20th for a $500,000 winner-take-all. And it's based on points, like how many chips you get. So, for example, if you had 3,200 points, you'll start with 3.2 million in chips. I've got, like, 1,500 points. I'll start with 1.5. And then, you know, it plays out from there. And that, that's the first year they're doing it like that. I think it's got a lot of fun, and I want to be in it. Oh, okay. Yeah, that is quite the epic showdown. Um, I want to ask, how much have you made in cash games? Are you one of the biggest... Would you say you're one of the top 10 winners of all time? No, I don't think so. Because I built my bankroll originally in the early 2000s. I was playing back then, believe it or not, people don't. We played 4,000, 8,000 mix, you know, when Lyle and a few people were in. And we played a stupid game of, stupid version of PLO and No Limit in there where it was like one in 2,000 blinds with a 1K ante, but it had a 100K cap. So you're just like ripping it in, you know, like nonstop. Um and I, but I, I did okay then. I built a bankroll. But once I started playing tournaments more regularly, I just kind of like cared less and less about playing cash. And I was doing good with that, you know, with like sort of the, in, 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 you know, other outside money that I was making. And I found that like from an enjoyment perspective, like cash games are kind of fun to shoot the shit with the guys. But like I like there being a trophy at the end. I like there being like sort of a year end, you know, player of the year series and stuff like that. Like that's fun for me more so than money. You're in it for the glory, it sounds like. I like the... Con- Listen, I play video games. I play fantasy hockey. I do stuff where it's, like, worth no money. But what am I doing? I'm trying to get a higher score, a higher ranking, right? For free. So I can do that. I can't do that with cash. It's like, cash is so private, as you know. It's like, nobody really knows, you know, who's winning, who's losing. And it's like, there's no way to tally it. And there's no final score. There's no video game aspect. It's just like, I used to look at cash games as, this is a job. Like, this is what you do to make money so that you can play tournaments. Because tournaments are swingy as but like, you know, obviously playing cash, it's going to be a little more steady than tournaments. Yeah, yeah, that is, the, that is why I originally played cash. Um, so how does it make you feel that uh, you're only number three now? You're putting in more volume than Bryn, at least, I think. Well, here's the thing. So for most of my adult life, for most of my career, I've been number one on that list. And then what happened was maybe five, six years ago, like I, I did this playing 10Ks and below. You know, where I amassed like, you know, the number one spot with a couple 10K WPTs in between. But then they started introducing 25Ks, 100Ks, million dollar buy-ins and stuff like that. So that just sort of like changed the landscape. 
You know, like you look at, for example, Bryn in that uh, one tournament, he won like, what was it, like 15, 18 million or something like that. So the numbers just went, got bigger. But, you know, the fact that I'm still number three is nice. It's tough to catch the guys ahead of me because they play pretty regular too. Uh, yeah, yeah. I think I think Bryn's been out of it. Uh, but uh, are you the true number one, you'd say? Well, it depends. If you look at like buy-ins under 50,000, right, I'm number one. You know, if you look at buy-ins like under 10, then I'm definitely number one. But, you know, this new high roller tour, there's like, uh, you know, a, a bigger opportunity to have huge scores. And that's okay. You know, it just is, it is what it is. Like, I mean, the, 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 that leaderboard doesn't really mean anything, right? Because you look at the top 100 and I see some guys from like, wow, this guy cashed for 4 million this year. But then I realize he probably spent like 5 million in buy-ins. So it's not like when you look at it on Mob and you see, wow, 4 million in earnings for a year. That doesn't mean they won that much. They, if they're playing all the high rollers, they're going to spend more than 4 million in buy-ins in one year. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, the smaller ones should mean more, I would think, uh, for, I mean, yeah, the sample is a lot, a lot bigger for the, for the smaller ones. And um, it's also, it is harder. Like, okay, so obviously in the high rollers, you play against tougher players, given, right? They're going to be better players. But you're, if you're like, you have 40 really good players and you always, you keep playing these 25Ks and some, every day, someone's, you know, adding 400K, 300K to their, to their Hennon mob. That's a lot. That's a lot easier than playing like 5Ks or 10Ks with like a thousand players because to do to, to have any significant score in one of those, you have to play for like four days. You have to run through a whole bunch of landmines and make the final table and win. And it's so much more, so much less likely. So what happens is all the regulars who play high rollers on a regular basis, they all just elevate past what anybody could, you know, accumulate if they don't play them. Like the only way to stay afloat in, on that list would be to play the high rollers. Okay, so now we've broken down the list. At least you're beating Phil Hellmuth. Uh, so you can, uh, you're can beating him by quite a large margin, too. But I guess he doesn't play the high rollers. No, he pretends that he's too good for them. <laughs> yeah, I guess, I don't know, he maintains that image. Well, I noticed you have a bit of a history, actually, in uh, the film industry. And you were in uh, Katy Perry's music video. I didn't know you were an X-Men. Uh, and uh, I knew you were, like co-producer of detention or something or this other uh film maybe you were part of another one i, I had no idea you had such a, a variegated uh career path yeah well one of those things has like a, a common thread a guy named joseph khan who he's created all like he's made all the best music videos in the world like he does taylor swift eminem you know every big name he's done their music videos and way back when i was with stars they did a campaign and joseph khan ran it and we became friendly through that and so he also, you know, made the movie Detention. He also made the music video, the Katy Perry Waking Up in Vegas, asked me if I would do a cameo. I was also in another one of his films called Bodied, which I really liked. That was a fun, fun film. Um, I was, but the, these are like cameos. I'm in there for like 10 seconds. And then Wolverine was another one they approached. They wanted an Easter egg in their movie. So I played like a 70s greasy, like Louisiana losing card player or something like that. And those are all like cameo things. I did one that was really fun. It was a TV show. It was a sitcom called Mr. D, which is pretty popular in Canada. Um, it's a guy named Jerry D. And the whole episode was like about me and we ad-libbed. And so it was a lot of fun. You know, it was you about me what? being... We ad-libbed, right? So mm -hmm. there's a rough script, but you sort of just kind of shoot the shit and you talk and, and you, uh, you know, you, you create a show out of it. But like there was a whole story oh. arc and it was all started with me. Like those guys run into me at a bar... And I'm drunk and like, 
sad and I ask if I could sleep on the guy's couch, you know, and then I asked him to borrow his credit card to play some online poker, go to his school. It, it's, it, it was a lot of fun because it was actual acting rather than just like, you know, what I did in uh, Wolverine, which is five seconds. So how'd you get into all this stuff? They just decided, uh, or you just like, just knew Joseph Kahn or, or was this something you sought out or did uh, they really want like a famous poker player in them? Yeah, all this stuff sort of came about because I created, you know, a name for myself in poker. And obviously, mm -hmm. like the Joseph Kahn connection. And, um, you know, when they made Wolverine, they were looking for, like you said, a famous poker player. And so they reached out to my agent, Brian, and asked, he asked if I wanted to go to Sydney for a few days and, and shoot like a scene in this movie. And I was like, yeah, that sounds fun. That's, uh, that's by the way, why, I mean, the whole, um, the whole like getting a trophy kind of thing was sort of the reasoning I had for wanting to be in movies myself. Um, but it, it does seem like kind of an impossible industry. It's a little odd. Uh, it, it because you're like sort of like a part of history or you're part of something, um, that, uh, it's, it's like in a way a trophy, a little bit of an intangible trophy, I guess you could say. Um, I'm a big believer though, that like, you know, I, I'm a big believer in that. Like, if you want to be successful at something, it's really important that you love doing it. Not just for what you get. Like I hear a lot of people say, I want to do this. And I'm like, why? It was like, cause I want a lot of money. I'm like, okay, but do you love doing it? Not really. Okay. Well, if you don't have a passion for something, you're far less likely to put in the hard work it takes, you know, to, to make a name for yourself. And today, like in that world, the film world, it's so much easier than it used to be in the sense that social media exists and you can create your own stuff with a, with an iPhone. Like you can make a movie now with an iPhone I'm not, and then you can distribute it on your own, you know, and if it's really good, you know, it'll, it'll go viral. I, I do agree with you actually. I've been discovering that and like, I've been wondering a bit, I've been, I've noticed even the way my, I myself think about different things. Uh, I think you can kind of, well, it doesn't work. You can't really control it too much, but like what you fall in love with changes a bit over time. I guess you must have loved poker then. I did. Like when I was a teenager, you know, I used to play pool. I played snooker growing up in the pool halls. And through that, we met some guys who played poker and they played like, we went to their house. I got like a six pack and 10 bucks I brought. And they were playing these crazy wildcard games like Fall of the yeah. Queen, Kings and Little Ones, you know, all these games that were like mostly luck. And I lost my 10 bucks pretty quick and watched. And then I started to notice we play like more regular. And I'm like, it seems like the same guys keep winning. Hmm. I thought this was all luck, right? And then I started to notice like, oh, this guy, he doesn't play. And it's like the very elementary learning of poker. I'm like, this guy, he only plays when he's got really good cards. And everyone else plays when they have bad cards. And he always wins in the end. Boom, <laughs> light bulb went off, right? And then from there, you know, I started to love it. And the guys that I was playing with were all a little older than me. But I started hosting games in my basement. And it's like, all I was thinking about was playing. And this is before No Limit Hold'em was, you know, the popular game. It was, it was all kinds of different games. But mainly, my go-to was Limit Hold'em, which uh, I have, I'm not nearly as good at Limit Hold'em as I used to because you outplayed me in a 50K, the one that you won, and I couldn't sleep because I knew you bluffed me. And I knew that night, but I didn't know at the time. <laughs> How could you tell? When I told you what I had, and I said I had King Queen, you looked at me and went, you folded King Queen <laughs> like this? No, I would have but, said that even if I was value betting, I think. Uh, I wouldn't have folded King Queen there, personally. Yeah. But, well, uh, I mean, it, <laughs> anyway, my read was when you said that, that, oh, no. I was trying to, I was trying to uh, have the poker face. I, was try I think I would have said it if I had, like, ace eight or whatever it was. I remember it was an ace high board. Yeah, the board ran out pretty bad for King Queen. It was ace 
king, deuce, three, four, with four clubs. <laughs> I did, I king, king, no club. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, you know, now Limit Holden's got all the solvers and all this all this sort of stuff. Um, as one of those games you can just sort of study at and be pretty good. Although it's super analytical. Um, so I guess you must love all the other things about uh, poker, like being an inf- well, you're basically like a poker influencer in a way. Like you're recording your hands, I see, and uh, you know you're doing tons of media stuff, and you're just you're always in the limelight. It seems like you have endless energy for this stuff, and you're always talking at the table. Um, I guess do you just love it all, or? Yeah, well, listen for me though. Like I either go hard to the paint, or I chill and relax really hard. So when I'm not playing poker and I'm not creating anything like that, I just really don't even think about poker at all. Like I'll go weeks and maybe even a month sometimes without it. But then when I am at the World Series of Poker and I'm in it, you know, like you said, I'm engaging. I do my daily vlog, which is essentially like a reality show that we release on YouTube every single day and gives people sort of an inside look at what it's like to play the World Series every single day the way that I do. And so, yeah, I mean, I've always been, ever since I started in this game, someone that's been at the like, you know, in the limelight of poker Whenever I do something big or something, there's usually some media attention or written about it. So um, I usually have a back-end reason, though, right? Like, I'm not just doing it because it's fun. I also, you know, I'm endorsing GG Poker or, you know, other products or different things like that that I want to promote. Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. Um, yeah, no, I've definitely seen you go at it hard, uh, like, fully doing all the things to not only, like, uh, be a winning player. I mean, I know you're also one of the uh, the original old school or people who's been around for a long time. There's not that many that have been around for a long time and have survived throughout the years as poker's evolved, but you're one of them. Um, I remember you were also, uh, you uh, were wise to the, uh, the online players being a bit more relevant, or excuse me, they're like using game theory and how they played and that kind of thing. You're like working on your game. It sounded like, uh, and you know, many of the old guys that originally got into poker, are you an old guy actually? I think you could count me in that. that I was like a bridge between, you know, the young and the old. And now I'd say I'm in the old guy territory, but you bring up some very good points there about just how I view poker and things like that. And I remember, I distinctly remember in 1998, playing in the World Series of Poker, and I was a young gun, and I was really sharp and aggressive and, you know, really playing hard. And I was playing with some of these legends of the game, you know, that were, like, older. And they would scoff at my aggressive play and mock me, and I'm like, they sucked, right? I'm like, these guys suck. I'm like, you three that are doing, you you play terrible. And I remembered to myself, I said, you know, never become that guy. Never become the old guy who looks at the young players and is like, oh, these idiots with these crazy aggressive plays. Yeah. So instead, what I figured I like, what I always felt like it was important to do was be, hum- you know, have enough humility to be like, all right, I need to learn from them, right? So now I can combine the wisdom of all the poker knowledge that I've created on my own, with also learning from these tools like solvers and things like that. And I did dive in pretty hard, and you know, ultimately I came away with solvers are an incredibly good learning tool, but they aren't the ultimate answer, you know. Like if you like, I find the players that try to mimic outputs like perfectly, they fail because you can't. It's like no human, even you, Jungle Man. Like it's impossible to mimic what happens, you know, w- you know, with a solver. So I found that like understanding the theory is important, but then seeing how I think humans implement it incorrectly, 
And I find that like a lot of modern um, play that we see today, there's a lot of key mistakes, I think, in terms of the way that humans are interpreting the information and applying it, you know, in, in, a, live, in a live setting. Do you want to talk about those mistakes? And by the way, um, by the way, that sounds like a very da dangerous combo. The wisdom of the uh, old players plus the technology and the, uh, the energy of the new ones. Um, it's pretty intimidating. And yeah, it reminds me a bit of like apparently the optimal combination. Optimal thing is not um, in the future. Wouldn't be, wouldn't be, I've read this, that it wouldn't be just like robots couldn't really totally replace humans for some reason of how the brain works, but actually it would be uh, a combination of humans and uh, robot teams. Um, this vaguely reminds me of that parallel, uh, but uh, it's, it's just kind of a cute thing. Like humans and robots working together as a team is apparently like, seems like it's going to be the future. But anyway, um, yeah. Do you want to talk about some of those mistakes sure, or uh, okay. Sure. So, so first and foremost, I dove in and obviously I didn't even understand how to use a solver. I didn't come from that world. So I hired a couple mm -hmm. guys who, one is a data scientist, the other one's a you know, top player. And, you know, they helped me work, you know, understand it and work through it. And I did so pretty hard when I was playing the heads up challenge that I ended up losing. Um, but I got a lot better as it went along. And uh, what I ended up taking from that ultimately was I sort of extrapolate a lot of the information from those solvers to live. And then I realized, hmm, you know, these people all study the same exact thing, right? Everyone's like, all right, three sizes. I got one third pot, two thirds pot, one and a half X. That's basically it. When people are inputting a solve, they're asking the question, they're asking the computer three questions or they're asking one question, but they're asking for one of three answers where a computer could come out with 600 answers, you know, or like they could compute 600 different options or even more thousands. Right. Mm -hmm. So I realized one of the things that they don't, hardly anybody is studying is a limping strategy. And so for the super high roller bowl, I started to implement a limping strategy that really broke their brains. Like when you think about how a solver works, right? For those that you know, aren't that familiar, which I imagine most of your audience would be a solvers. Uh, when, when you have two players in the blinds, like the small blind and big blind who can have like infinite Rangers, it makes the solver break. <laughs> like It's so much more difficult, right? To figure yeah. out, um, you know, how to, how to, how to, how to proceed forward. And it allowed me also deep stack to see a lot more flops, um, without, you know, say for example, you know, you're opening like ACE 10 suited and you get three bet and it's like too big and you have to like fold it or something just for example. Well, if you limp, you don't, you're never folding. Like you get to see more flops and you can also do so with a, you know, balanced range or whatnot. But ultimately I found that like unique sizing right? Sizing that don't fall into the categories of what everyone studies really threw people for a curve. So instead of betting two thirds pot a lot of time, I was betting 80% on flops that, you know, require a quarter bet sizing. I was betting 50%, you know? And so everyone's like, whoa, whoa, you're not balanced. I'm like, okay, I'm not balanced. Cool. But do you know which way? Do you know what my range is constructed of when I'm betting these things? And the answer is no. Right. So yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. No. So, so the point is, is like, the whole point of GTO is not to be exploited, but if people don't know how you construct ranges and your sizes, they can't exploit you. Once they figure it out, like really smart guys like you, you start to notice like, okay, well, when Daniel's betting 50%, he's way too strong. His, his range is nutted. And when he's betting quarter, it's like bluff heavy. And now you take advantage of me and start to exploit me. Well, then if I see that, now I might, you know, come back at you and start flipping it on you, right? And that's the fun part for me, the leveling more, not being a slave to like rolling the dice and saying, well, 
you know, I rolled a 14. That means I got a three bet this one. Like I don't, I didn't enjoy playing poker using randomization. I much prefer playing poker, like actually thinking about what, you know, my opponent and making it specific to them, especially in tournaments. Right. Yeah. I have a, I have a bunch of things to say. Uh, first of all, I prefer 80% in pretty much every situation more than two thirds pot. I find even when I was looking at the solvers, it didn't really seem like two thirds pot that much, but there are situations where it's good. And uh, your idea is good. It's actually a, a great idea is basically just like do things that are outside of their comfort zone. And, um, you know, I play, uh, there are some guys that are really like religiously stalling these, uh, religiously paying attention to these solvers. But in my experience, I've been a little bit, um, I, I've been a little bit underwhelmed. I've seen all sorts of mistakes. Um, I used a slightly different approach because there's lots of, there are many different game trees that I found that people didn't really explore. And actually, they're not, they're probably not that far off uh, from the EV of like taking the more conventional lines. And you can reach some really big exploits by taking some of these um, game trees. Uh, I That's more along my approach. And then ad and additionally, I mean, like, obviously we're not even talking about like exploiting your opponents and there's all kinds of ways to exploit your opponents in tournaments. It's super hard for most of these guys to, for almost, almost all but like the top players, and even like me, or I don't know, maybe not you, uh, but like to do certain things that the solvers would have you do when it's like a final table, um, is really, really hard. It's like hard to really take that into consideration. There's, so there's probably a lot of potential out there to exploit. Um, I also personally use a bit more of the psychology of things be and some more population exploits because I find that a lot of people, uh, on, when we're talking about the leveling war, which by the way, I can't stand a I think I mentioned, I can't, like, the, the, can you believe some of these guys, like, use, like, they, they shuffle the chips and, like, where the, the chip lands, they're gonna, like, bet or check or, or, or something like that. They're gonna use a mixed strategy based on, like, shuffling the chips and, like, doing the exact same thing every hand. I, it's, like, too brutal for, uh, for me. It feels like, takes a lot of the fun out of the game. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, again, like I said, when I was studying and you're trying to learn how to implement game theory, optimal play, I mean in order to try to do that and learn that randomizing is like important, right? Because you're trying to actually hit the, you know, hit the, the numbers in the right spot. Once you get a handle on that, doing it is kind of dumb, right? Like why, you know how I randomize now? I randomize based on this. Okay. This guy thinks I don't bluff much. I'm going to bluff more against him. Right. And then this guy thinks I, 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 uh, I, you know, I, I bluffed, I never bluff. So you know what I'm saying? So I basically just tailor it to the player and then, so essentially what I'm going to be is I'm going to be overall pretty close to balanced, but how I'm randomizing is player dependent, you know, based on their tendencies and trying to exploit them in every way. That's what I like about live poker and tournaments specifically is like, you're never going to hit the long run, right? Where you're playing some hands where you need to be perfectly balanced. I find that like, it's really good for people that are not good at poker, right? If you want to learn how to get good at poker and you don't have natural talent, like, Study, study this way. This is definitely the way for you to get better and you will get better. Once you've got a handle on it, you realize and you learn that like poker is more than just that in, in a live setting, especially if you're playing like for some of your listeners, if you play like $500 buying tournaments and 1000 and you're randomizing, my God, you don't randomize in a 1K. Like, you know what I mean? It's just like, you don't like, oh, well, you know, this, 
guy from Kentucky who's 75 years old put all the money in, and you're going, well, I need to call here about 50% of my range. You're like, no, you just don't call. Okay? <laughs> Make sure the old guy is just not whipping out his moves on you. Um, yeah. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, I, if, if you, like, had to play GTO in, uh, in like, 1Ks, I mean, imagine uh, Phil Homieth wouldn't have much of a career whatever, with whatever he's doing. Um, seems to be a favorite topic of yours. Well, yeah, he certainly doesn't. You know, it's funny. The first time I explained GTO to him years ago, he said, I invented that. <laughs> I was like, he's, he says, I invented it. And I said, no, Phil. I tried to explain to him, and I wasn't insulting him. I was saying, no, you're an exploitative player. You're not, you know, you're not game theory optimal. He's like, what do you mean? He's like, I'm, I, I invented game theory. I invented GTO. And like, it, it, it was just funny to, to hear how he approached it. But yeah, I think so. Phil specifically does a lot of things really, really well that like kind of what we talked about that are outside the norm and they are all designed to exploit. If you know what he's doing and you're up to speed on like what he's doing, then he becomes exploitable, right? So some yeah. of the better players, high rollers, start to notice where he's really imbalanced with different sizes and, you know, you know, in different streets in terms of like his aggression factor and all this sort of stuff, like against really, really good players, it becomes more difficult to, uh, you know, to, to overcome that. Mm -hmm. Um, wait, did you guys ever play like a grudge match or something? You must've done some kind of competition between, between him. I've seen you call him out really a lot. Yeah. We played the high stakes duel. We played the high stakes duel three times. Okay. The first one, I had 98% of 97% of the chips. Okay. I like literally grinded them down where I had 97K. He had like five, 95K to 5K. He won. He came back and won. And then he beat me the next two times too. He did the same thing to me. He did the same <laughs> thing to me. I had all the chips and I like folded in the stupid hand. And I, I saw remember. He folded trips. Yeah, it was, it was so stupid in retrospect. I, I, there's one particular detail I remember, but uh, I'm waiting for revenge. I'm waiting for the – trying to get a play him for millions. But uh, Well, you know, he's playing Jason Kuhn, uh, I think, coming up this week in the next high-stakes duel for $1.6 The issue with that structure, though, is, like, in the early stages, he's just dead, right? When you play deep stack, he just, he just gets grinded down. He just limps every button and just – he's trying to get to the end game. And then when the average stack is, like – 30, 40 big lines, he starts to kick up the aggression. But then by then, it's like, it's kind of a crapshoot, you know? So that, that happens a lot quicker than you'd like it to happen, especially when you're playing for, you know, really high stakes. Oh, oh you know what? I actually have a story about him. Um, I played a tournament with him in Venice, with him and, uh, I believe, Galen Hall. Do you know who that is? Yeah, of course. He's actually, Galen Hall's actually not bad. But um, him and Galen were like the chip leaders, I believe, uh, it was like, it was three-handed. The first thing that happens was he made this like crazy call in a huge hand that I thought there was like no way Galen was bluffing in and he was wrong. And then he had uh, three big blinds left all of a sudden, three-handed and two cash, by the way. And then he says, three big blinds left. He says, this is where I play better than everyone else. Yeah. <laughs> like, dude, with three big blinds. <laughs> what are you gonna do? What are you gonna do? <laughs> so then, what happens? He's a, he's in a, he's in the small blind, right? He limps in the small blind. He limps. Galen checks. The flop is queen ten eight. He bets one blind. Galen moves all in. He folds, and Galen shows something like 
jack four offsuiter, nine four offsuiter, something like this. And then obviously he like bubbles this uh, high roller, and I'm just thinking, whoa. Yeah. No, well, he has that. He has that inner need to like let you know, you know, like so. Him and this guy Eric Person got into a beef when they played heads up in the heads up tournament that we had. And Eric was giving him the fingers and really giving him the shit, saying, you suck, I'm going to bust you, da-da-da. And he ended up busting Phil. So then, you know, they decided, like, they're going to play in a cash game on live stream, live at the bike or something. And they're playing one $200 blinds. So Eric brings, you know, he brings artillery. He brings, like, 500K. He's sitting on the table with, like, 500,000. Oh, okay. Phil is playing for hours. He bought in for, like, 10K or 20K. And then he's sitting on $2,500, playing one in 200 so he's got 12 big blinds in a cash game. And all he's doing is talking about how he's going to get all of Eric Person's chips. And I'm like, you would have to double through him, I think, 15 times in a row for that to happen. But it's funny. You know, he's got to do that. He's got to, like, he's got to get in the, in the verbal battle streets. I think, I think there's something to his psychology with how it works against bad players. And one thing I will say is that he's quite good at a... He's quite good at playing like the uh, soft game of poker, of like building his brand and building it around like his his uh, not so uh, appealing tendencies. He's managed to do that pretty well. It's almost like inspiring in a way, because it's it's not that easy to do. But he like recognizes how to do it, which isn't like it yeah, takes some yeah. kind of talent of sorts. Let's so not like, like if you ask the average person who's not a big time poker player, and you ask the average person on the street or whatever, they all tell you like Phil Hellmuth's the best in the world, like. He, he's he's been able to convince the world of that. Now, if you actually go into the poker community and you ask the high stakes community or whatever, and like obviously nobody agrees that plays the game at a high level, but he doesn't focus on them. He's not he, he can't convince them because you know they know differently. So what he does is he focuses on you know in like the mainstream maintaining this image because he has the most bracelets. That equals you know he's the best player of all time. Which you know there's a lot of players who can make that claim play you know like with you in bobby's room you know the in the old days doyle and ship and of course phil ivy you know and, and and guys who have been doing it for a long time in the in the high stakes there too yeah he's, he's somehow done really well at that and uh rub shoulders with the right people it seems like he's very good at uh he's got quite some social skills i would say um well they're unique i think like he's a he's an he's he's has a, a real uh zest for billionaires and celebrities like I have seen that, yeah. yeah he's, someone's like, if someone has, you know, is a regular person with a business, whatever. Oh, they have a billion dollar business? All of a sudden, this person, and I think it's part of his value structure and how he views people. You know, he sees this person as a billionaire as an, as an elite person or an important, more important person, which I think is aligned with what a lot of the world does do. When in reality, it's just like, okay, this is somebody who has a lot of money and came up with maybe a good idea, but I don't give them, like, I don't have that same approach to how I judge, like, people I want to hang out with or, you know, who I value as a really good person. I've met a lot of good people who have two children and make like 60,000 a year and like are great father, great parents and like really smart, wise people. Um, mm -hmm. They don't have a billion dollars, but like they're much more of like what I would call a role model for, for how to live a good life in, in a lot of ways. Cause a lot of billionaires, you know, they say, right. A lot of them uh, end up amassing so much. And if they lose a foundation or they don't have one, in mm -hmm. terms of a reason why they were accumulating this money, they can feel empty and they can feel, I don't know if you've ever felt that jungle, but I have in my life. Like when I got like I, my whole goal in life was to make money, right? Just make money playing poker. And then I did. Now I got all this money. What the hell am I going to do with it? So guess what I did? 
started drinking, playing high, lost it all. Because now, subconsciously, I sabotage myself so that I can start all over, you know? And now I have a purpose again until I figured it out. Yeah, I did that in the year 2000, where I was like, in 1999, I built up a big bankroll for myself. So in 2000, I was golfing every day, going to play, going to dinners, playing poker, drinking, you know, losing 30,000 a night, whatever, just who cares, you know? And then by the end of the year, the money dried up and I had to go back to work. And I realized like, I sort of self-sabotaged. Well, not self, sort of, I did, you know? And I, I noticed that with other players um, that I looked up to in a, in a way that we were playing like two and 4,000 and like playing, you know, they built up a bankroll, they've got millions of dollars. And then they got these hookers here, they got cocaine. And all of a sudden the next week, they're like, hey bro, can I get $500 to play this 2040 game? And I'm like, you were just playing 2,000, 4,000. And now you're, now, but that's what he's doing. He's like, all right. He got through the strippers, the drugs, the blow and everything. And he's going to go back down to 2040 and he's going to do it again. So what happened was, I believe what in these minds is they had a purpose, which was to get money. Once they did, they didn't have any reasoning or they didn't have any hook or vision. So they sabotage. Then you go broke. You lose all that money. And now all of a sudden your life has purpose again. Right. And I don't know if you've ever experienced anything similar. Um, well, I want to ask you a question for first. I've, I, I have sort of. Uh, but in a different, a different way, I guess you could say. And I don't know if I am self-sabotaging in some kind of like subtle way. I don't think that I do that, but I'm not sure. It's hard to know. It's hard to know what you don't know. It doesn't yeah. work that way. Yeah. Um, my my question is, uh, did you find a purpose beyond just like building your bankroll back up? Uh, like I know you're you're vegan. Are you still vegan? Um, mm -hmm. Do you have any other purposes related to that? Uh, do you have some like goals in mind or did something shift internally uh, after you went through that period? I think, like I said, like right after 2000, when I sort of dusted off that money I won, you know, like uh, in, the, in, the, in the previous year, I decided, um, you know, that it was time to get serious because I, again, was really, really looking at other people that I looked up to and watching them continually be in this pattern. And I sort of realized like, no, 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 I need to get this right. So I need to be more disciplined. I need to be more structured so that. When I'm, I didn't want to be the guy who's 65 years old, sitting in a 15-30 limit hold'em game, having to win to pay rent. So I said, I want to make enough money so that by the time I'm in my 30s, like I don't have to work. I do this as a passion and I, do, and I love it. So I said, now's the time to do that. And that's when I really sort of got back on track. But it really came from, and I mean, a couple of the names, I'll tell you, because whatever, I think they're, one was Huxied, who back then was, you know, who's such a brilliant player, right? And he, when he played his A game, he was the best, period. He was the best. The problem with Huck was he also had an F game. And his F game would come about if he made one mistake. He was so hard on himself. Like, he might miss one value bet in Omaha 8 on the river and then just decide, f*** it. If I can't play perfect, what's the point? And then he would just, like, dump off, right? Another guy was Lee Salem, who I, I saw this him go on this ride, like, over and over. And these are two guys I really liked and looked up to. And I saw, you know, the path they were on. And I realized I was on the same one, you know, very young. I was only like 25, 26. And then I decided to get serious. And then I started to just say, you know what? We're going to Bellagio every day. We're going to play mixed games. We're going to play 2 4, 4 8. And by the time 2002, 2003 ran around, I was playing 4,000, 8,000, you know, in some of these really big games. And, uh, you know, being younger and like studying in the most simple ways, like we didn't have like mixed game solvers or anything like that. So I just ran Sims. Like I would go home and run Sims on Stud 8 and be like, Oh, who's your favorite on Fifth Street? Just that alone, the fact that I knew on Fifth Street, like if I was ahead or behind their range, like th that was enough, you know, like that was enough to, to give me an edge.
Oh, the po the pro poker tools is sort of like the uh, the the basic level of of Sims in uh, poker. Like the I used a I used a floppy disk, MS DOS floppy disk, and it was called Mike Caro's Poker Pro. And you stick it in your computer, and you could run like a sim, and it would take like hours to run because it just you know it would actually you know it was a very slow computer type thing. And then I would do that. I would like write down the hands after a session, and I'd go home and I'd run them and just see you know, so that I know for next time. And like, that's one, one good way to learn. Obviously that's very, you know, simplistic way, but like once you understand a spot that you've played before, the whole goal or the idea is like to have, when anytime you come up with similar spots, you're prepared because you already know the answer. Like you already sure. know. Yeah. 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 You want to like, yeah. I mean, the cool thing in poker is you can prepare pretty well if you're, if you're like experienced and know what to look for and that kind of thing. Um, I sort of had a bit of, uh, your experience or, or at least it happened very quickly with me, uh, particularly with, uh, I mean, it's more like a gradual process of sorts. Um, just my whole like relationship with pursuing women and, uh, figuring out what I want out of life and that sort of thing. It's kind of similar in many ways. Um, I did have a shift of, uh, going from, I want to make all this money to use it for a higher purpose, um, to, well, wait a second. I mean, there's other things that are like, in a sense, currencies that are valuable. And so it shifted from like the positive impact I wanted to create plus like the experiences I wanted to have as well. And so now everything became a lot more complicated, um, related to that. And then, yeah, it really made me ask the question, like, even with, uh, like I did, I did go on a couple uh, party trips with uh, a bunch of girls and that kind of thing. But it made me, uh, I very quickly realized uh, that lifestyle is not exactly for me. Um, I felt it very, very strongly about like a few days in. I was just like, I want to get out of here. This is the funny thing. Um, and then I, uh, it, that one. I did that. I did that for one month too. The first time I got divorced. I was oh, you married. did. I got I was married once, and then. I was at the World Series of Poker, and I had my best year ever—not in poker, but like with the rail. Like I was like, you know, I would be playing, and you know, when I would play at the World Series, a lot of people come up to the rail and they sweat me, you know. And I would uh, look and send. Sometimes you'd see something that was very, very attractive, and I would, you know, you know, chat. I remember one was funny because Jerry Buss, who is now he's going to the Lakers, he brought a couple girls. He always did, you know. He brought them to the World Series when he was playing, and there was one who was on the rail and I thought she was really cute, but she had no idea who I was, right? She looked up and there was a big, she didn't know who I was because she didn't know poker, but she looked up and there was this huge poster of me, you know, because I had the player of the year banner up there, all right? And all of a sudden, you know, she had a different view of me. And, you know, that month, her and, you know, I, I had like a very robust month in that regard. And then by the end of it, I felt like you, I was like, this is not for me. Like I was exhausted by it. It was too much to keep up with, but I got it out of my system. And I think it's, I, I don't regret it because, you know, you just got divorced. You just kind of want to do that, right? Like, let's have some yeah. fun and, oh. and do this. But, but it was, it was really valuable because now I know, like, I, I knew like from then, it's like, that's just not who I am. Like, I'm not yeah. the guy who needs to be doing that. The funny thing is like a lot of the guys on these sort of, um, on these things that I knew a few other guys also that did these things as well and sort of like manufactured these situations where even though they weren't necessarily like, the best looking guys or whatever, they were smart enough to put together uh, a situation where everyone like, you know, to manage good parties and uh, 
uh, create a situation where everyone uh, had a good time, basically. But they all basically did essentially wife up, is the funny thing. It seemed, it seems as though it wasn't really for anyone. I mean, it's different for everybody, right? Some people actually just have like a sexual addiction. But I think the vast majority of men who do that or women or whatever, it's about validation and it's about ego and it's about the chase, the hunt, and it's about sort of like being seen as somebody desirable, right? So it's not about like how much you enjoy sex necessarily, which, you know, everyone does to different degrees, but it was more, uh, you know, and I know several guys I know, who, you know, were quote unquote players, like they were aware of it. You know, they're like, yeah, I do this because it makes me feel good about myself. And so when you get to that point where you realize like you're doing this to fill holes, you realize ultimately you, there's, there's no number of partners you could have that a level really fill those holes. Like those holes need to be filled a different way. That's just a temporary band-aid until you figure out like introspectively, like, no, no, you know, this, this isn't, this isn't the answer. Yeah, yeah. I uh, totally agree. And actually one thing I wanted to say is that um, there's actually a, a large, I'll touch on this briefly. It's, it's not exactly something that most people I think can understand, but I think this whole tendency uh, relates back to basically looking for like chasing for short-term gratification versus long-term. Whereas like the long-term gratification, you like basically by pursuing all this stuff, you forfeit all the uh, pleasures of this long-term gratification of like having a fulfilling relationship or whatever, at least in this context. And a lot of what's happening now in the world uh, because it's becoming more globalized and very fast is basically, especially in like first world countries, is more and more people are essentially embracing this hookup kind of uh, culture in mind. And um, basically, but it doesn't just stop there in hookup culture. It also extends to money as you're talking about. It can be like, or like hanging out, or just like, it can apply to money and it can apply to other things as well. But basically, uh, a lot of this is happening and, and on a global level, uh, and it's expediting quite fast, and people are discovering this actually kind of sucks, um, it appears. And yeah, but basically, because of the expansion of so many more options, it's like basically like a candy store just opened up, and you couldn't really have like all the treats. You could have like, you know, Tootsie Rolls. And you could have like Reese's Pieces, and um, you know you could have uh, you know some uh, Haribo gummy bears. But now all of a sudden the candy store opened up, and you can have all kinds of stuff you've never seen. Uh, and actually, that exact parallel happens in the U.S., where they have much more snacks than in all the other countries. There's just like expansion of op options going on. Um, but it's kind of one of those things where it feels like people just have to like get that out of their system, as you said figure out that that's not for them or that's not really the way to do things for most of them um, in order to return to that. But um, where I'm going with this is this, this ends up uh, kind of going to the point of like, where do you, uh, what, what is it that really makes you happy kind of thing as you were getting, getting at it. Are you following me? Yeah, for sure. Actually, while you were speaking, I was thinking about the scientists who discussed sort of the, real reason why our brains have been rewired over time, right? Like I think back to my childhood, if I wanted to watch a movie, right? The process to watch a movie was get in the car, get my mother to take me, go to Blockbuster, drive there, look through all these videotapes, right? Sign in with a card, bring the, bring the movie home, and then bring it back like three days later. That's to watch a movie. How about now? Today, not only do people not have to go to Blockbuster, they can go on their phone, boom, 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 click one thing and they watch a movie. So we live in a society of instant gratification. 
We have this instant feedback loop with social media. Everything that people get today, and the sort of description was, and it's not the young generation's fault because you know we sort of created this world for them, but like they look at a mountain and they say, okay, I want to be at the top of the mountain. And then the older people, older generation says, okay, but you have to climb the mountain. They're like, no, 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 I just want to be at the top of the mountain. Like I know, but it, you have to work to get it. So if you think of you know my parents and older generations, like they quote unquote like worked really hard to have things, where now you know these things are at, the, at our fingertips and they do give us so much more options. So there's so much more distraction in the world from happiness, which is, you know, sort of answer your question, right? In that, you know, because we have so many options to just distract us, whether it's scrolling Twitter, how many people do that? Like 10 hours just on Twitter and they don't realize like their whole day is gone and they did nothing, you know? 10 hours on Twitter is, is intense. Yeah. People do it, you know, like I see, I'm like, how the hell is this person tweeting for 10 straight hours? I look at their timeline, like, my God, take a break, right? But yeah, so ultimately I think happiness evolves. And for me, like happiness is derived from freedom, right? Freedom to be able to, you know, have a life now that I can do the things that I want to do, right? Making a difference for other people is also beneficial. You know, really now, I mean, my, my, my happiness is derived predominantly from my relationship with my wife, Amanda, who, you know, she's my soulmate. You know, we would, I spend 90, almost all of my time with her, you know, more so than any other person. And like, that's, that's happiness for me. It, you know, it's, it's essentially what, what, what it's come to. And I think, like you said, it evolves for everybody. Like what is happiness for a seven-year-old versus somebody who's 50? It, it, it changes. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm happy for you. And um, yeah, I agree. I mean, that's what's, uh, there's a lot of that going on in the world. It's kind of, this is essentially, I mean, I took this to the conclusion and this is the basis behind my whole, uh, spiritual or big part of my spiritual journey was like, basically, you know, everything is, um, I'll just touch on this for a second. Maybe you can relate to this or not, but basically everything is always like, if you're always like chasing for like the next feeling, uh, and it doesn't come from somewhere within, then, you know, the feeling, uh, is created by the distance between where you're at and getting it. And so you can never like reach long-term fulfillment from this. And so, like, you can get that from whatever, um, and, it'll, you know, the, the benchmark just moves again. Now you got to go there, and then... Yeah, there, there's a quote it. that sums up what you're saying, and it's essentially this. I've heard this quote, and I love it. It says, if we believe, if we believe in the lie that more is always better, haha, then we can never truly arrive, because wherever we are, like, more is always better. Oh, really? I didn't know there was a poem behind it, but yeah, that, that uh, more poetically uh, describes what I was going to say, more elegantly. Yeah. Well, it's, yeah, um, it, just, it was a quote that I saw, and I really liked it. It spoke to me. So that's um, that's why I've been so interested, or a big part of why I was so interested in spirituality in a way, because it was like taking this idea to the extreme of like, what's the actual solution to all this? It's to go backwards and like find fulfillment from within and whatever it is that is within. Uh, I, as you were mentioning, freedom is a big part of that. I mean, to be able to choose what you want is, is a crucial element of that. So we're... I mean, it is, it is quite fortunate. That's one of the cool things about poker is that it allows you to, like, be free with and do kind of whatever you want. I mean, do you care a lot about spreading the the game for these kinds of reasons? Or um, you're just really passionate or you just love to play? Is there any, like... It wouldn't be for, you know, for those reasons specifically. Like, I love poker. You know, I want okay. poker to be as, like, big and accept. And it's, like, it's it's my video game that I chose, right? So whatever, you know, whatever video game, which whatever sport, whatever endeavor, whatever business 
that you fall in love with, you want it to grow and you want it to be elevated, right? So I know that I can play a role in that, you know, and I have for, you know, decades now, really, um, in terms of, you know, doing that. And I think I'm uniquely positioned to be able to do that. I think, like, partly because I probably, from my youth, I was always sort of filmically, I, you know, I had a filmic mind in terms of, you know, I thought I would be an actor and writer and all that sort of stuff. So being on camera was always very easy for me. It was never something mm-hmm. that I had to, like, adjust to. And uh, I feel like I'm also uniquely qualified enough to understand, like, your, like the world of the elite, you know, solver world poker players, but also take that information and explain it to the average person in such a way where they understand what I'm talking about. Yeah, if you have a discussion with, like, three guys who are super high-end, they're going to be speaking in terms that, like, the average person doesn't even know what the they're talking about, right? Mm-hmm. So I have a unique ability to be like, all right, this is a concept that's really high end. Let me try to like simplify it so that, you know, the average person will understand. And I think it makes it less intimidating for new people to come into the game. Because I think if you told the average person today, like, oh, if you want to learn how to play poker, you need to be spending 10 hours a day working with solvers and understanding game theory. I'm like, that sounds awful. Like, I just want to play for fun. How do I do that? It's like, all right, let me teach you a concept. Here's one. Try that next time you play. You know, little by little, rather than it being such an intimidating idea that, like, you cannot win unless you are a solver bot. Now, that's the cool thing about poker, actually, is that it's, like, one of the only things that um, I, I was realizing this. Because if you if you wanted to go into acting, for example, uh, like, in order to start making money from acting or to, like, really do something. I mean, if you go into plays, I've been investigating this as well. Like, you, this is something you really need to love because there's a really, it's going to be tough to make money in this. And it's really going to be tough to, you know, be a professional fighter, like professional anything. But in poker, you don't really need to get that good, relatively speaking, to make like pretty good money. Um, You just need to beat your friends. And you just need to, uh, like, you just need to know the basics. Like if you just know pre-flop and like a little bit of post-flop, you're probably okay. Uh, from my experience, so it's, yeah, it's cool. I, for I've that. said this before. I've said this before, but like, let's say you're the, like the eighth best player in the world, like the eighth best player in the world. If you sit down with the other seven, you're the sucker. Like, if you're playing poker every day with seven guys who are better than you, and you're like, you could be the eighth best in the world, but like, you're the sucker. So really, it really speaks to like what you're saying is, if you have good networking skills and social skills, you see a lot of the games have gone private now. So if you're you know a pretty good player, you can get in these private games with people that are just you know don't know what they're doing. And playing poorly and crazy like you don't need to be all that good like you said like i look at what does it take to be like who's the best poker player today right and define what that means i know a couple guys who they're not better than the wizards but they make 10 times more money than the wizards so if the end goal is making money who's the best is it the guy who makes the most money well obviously at playing the game specifically he's not better but if you incorporate the social skills and the ability to get in these games that's part of the game for a professional poker player so he's crushing in this area. doesn't matter. He doesn't care about this stupid solver. He doesn't need to. You know, he's playing with players that are much weaker than he is. Like Dan Bilzerian's a good example of that, right? A guy who, he won't beat, you know, the toughest lineups in the world. He knows that, you know? But he can make a lot more money playing in, you know, games that he can get into that the average person can't. He has totally worked that angle, and I 100% agree. Um, okay, I got to ask some questions from the fans. We kind of touched on them. Uh, but we got to give a little shout out to the fans. A little love for the fans, Dan. If it wasn't for the fans, we wouldn't have an audience. So, what are your expected? Um, well, I mean, I'm curious about this myself. How do you balance poker and marriage life? 
It's actually really easy because my wife Amanda, she was Amanda Leatherman, who was the host of the big game on poker on um, uh, on Fox. She was also, you know, she worked in Poker Wire. She worked in poker, right? She used to interview players, so she understands the game. She understands life, and she understands like, and that's I think that's part of, you know, what she always knew me as. So um, she's very supportive in that regard, and uh, I, it's very it becomes easy. I think it's more difficult, obviously, if you choose somebody who, you know, doesn't understand your world very much. When you're like, you come home and you're like. How how was work? I was like, I lost two hundred thousand dollars. Like, what? You know, average you know average person is like, well, you should quit. You should stop. You know, when are you gonna quit? It's like an addiction. I'm like, you know, I won like six hundred thousand last week, right? Like, it's like it's okay. It's gonna be okay. But my wife does understand, you know, the swings, and she uh, and that makes it easy to to balance. All right. Yeah, that sounds like a match made in heaven almost. Um, what are your uh, okay? So. Do you have any advice for someone who's playing lower stakes on how to become successful? Yeah. So if you play low stakes, right, I would say start with this. Like, what is your real vision and your goal? Are you doing this as a hobby because you just want to improve and make some money on the side? Or do you really have aspirations of, you know, making it big and making a lot of money? If it's the latter, if you want to make it really big and play in the higher stakes, then it's going to require a lot of hard work. There is no magic pill. It's not as simply here, do this, you'll fix, you know, you, you'll, you'll be a star. It's going to take a lot of hard work. And part of that hard work is working with solvers, under, you know, studying the game at a very high level, you know, and continually, you know, taking shots and moving up in limits and testing yourself against better players. Because one of the ways you'll improve is you'll find when you face off against competition that is at your level or maybe a little bit above, right? If you play 1-3 all the time, fine, you're the big star there, but like, it's not the same world as playing 100, 200, you know, or something like that. So um, testing yourself, you know, in that regard. But, you know, I, like what I used to do is I was a shot taker. So if I played, well, back then it was limit hold'em. I would take like, say it was, so I was playing 10, 20. Well, I would take like 30% of my bankroll, try to play 20, 40. And if I lost it, I'd go back to 10, 20. Shot taking, what that would do is when you go up a level or so, and let's say you did get your butt kicked and have to go back down, you go back down as a much stronger player. So you should be winning more at the lower limit than you were in terms of your hourly rate. And then, you know, you better prepare yourself for next time. You've got to keep pushing your comfort zone, sounds like. Yeah. Yeah. Getting at, at, learn from the better players when they sometimes kick your ass, but also yeah. try to win all the money. Yeah. Um, I want to add that I, myself, when I was first starting to play poker, I didn't have the goal to... Because I didn't think I was going to be like the best poker player ever. I just wanted to like make enough money to be free. And then from there, I was like, oh, maybe I could play a little higher. And I presume that would be helpful for other people too. It's just that. Just set the bar not super high uh, because it's a little too crazy. Um, let's also ask, uh, do you have any expectations for poker in the next decade? What do you think the future poker holds for you and for... Um, yeah, and for, like, the rest of the world. I think the game is going to continue to evolve. Like, it always does, okay? Ever since I started playing in the 90s, you know, in terms of, like, what the, you know, what was the considered the correct way to play, you know, that, that was clearly not the most best, the best way to play. And I think we're at a place now where a lot of people have rested on their lures and the idea that, like, this is it, you know, this is the way the game's going to be played. But I think five to ten years from now, you're going to see a lot more dynamics in terms of different sizing, you know, some limping strategies for sure will be, you know, once people like go into the streets of like some limping strategies and tournaments, they'll see some of the value in it. I think um, we'll see a lot. We'll see a lot of like changes in that regard. I think, um, 
you know, we'll see new formats always. I think that's really important. Like one of the most recent formats that's really taken off is this sort of mystery bounty thing. Like formats that not only attract recreational players and they're fun, but also give them a much more level playing field, right? So like a really good player in a mystery bounty doesn't have as big of an edge over a recreational player. They still do. They're going to have an edge either way, but it's minimized a little bit, you know, by a format like that. So things like that, things to keep people interested, always innovate, always come up with like, you know, new ideas for fun twists, whether it was like, you know, the PKO tournaments that they have or the progressive jackpot, like different, different ideas. But ultimately, I think um, also like the poker industry uh, realizing and understanding that like we're our, we're a niche sport and we're going to be right. Like mm-hmm. fishing isn't like the fishing on TV isn't going to be, become mainstream. Like people who like to fish, they watch it, you know. People who are fishermen, they're into that. They watch it. Nobody else watches it. And that's okay. That's their audience, right? I think with poker too, sort of getting past this idea that we have to make it mainstream where everybody plays, it's not that it's not that easy to understand and play for the average person. They're not going to be watching it on TV and being like, wow, this is really interesting. Especially if they watch like high rollers. You know, high rollers, you got guys sitting there for 30 seconds, you know, staring at the wall and then oh, make so the bet. Man. It's so brutal. <laughs> I mean, that's not fun to watch, like, you know, these live streams. It's fun for people in poker, and that's okay, right? That's what I – well, I think that, like, could hypothetically change. Maybe, maybe, maybe. But I I, heard, I remember you went Macho Man on uh, some people in a high roller, actually. I stole from you. I apologize, but I don't. So I was so no, tilted. No. Yeah, I was no, so I'm... tilted. I busted the um, – it was the final event of the Poker Masters. It was the 50K buy-in. It was right on the bubble. I got aces in against pocket jacks. I lost the hand. And then I do the exit interview. And I sort of had a shitty week with that, like all the all-ins. I was just, you know, it just happens. I was losing like all the two-to-one favorites. I just kept getting f***ed, right? So, Super, yeah. so I was tilted in this interview. And I was like, I'm playing so good right now. The results are not there, but I'm dominating. I'm dominating these things. And I'm like, super high roller bowl. I'm going to have big stacks of chips. How are you going to get my chips? You can't. The only way is to get it in 30% equity and try to suck out. Oh, yeah, super high roller bowl. I'm coming for you. And then it was the most dominant. And then I did. And then I actually did basically got the chip lead very early on and held on to it the whole way through and sort of coasted without much... uh, much without my stack being at risk pretty much ever well it was never at risk not once well you're the macho man dan of this stream i don't know if you're the true uh, of this uh <laughs> podcast but i don't know if you're the true macho man dan but of uh, this podcast uh you are and actually uh i think it would be funny if i, I thought it was funny i thought it was um <laughs> like imitation is is uh this is saying imitation is the best form of flattery and anyway you're like what are the only people that's actually doing stuff everyone's just staring at each other like I'm bored. I'm bored out of my mind. I can't take it. I have to uh, do something insane, like dress up as some yeah. freaking Fruit Loop. Um, I and, love your yeah. outfits. They're great. Your outfits right. are like on point, next level. <laughs> thank you, thank you. I've, I've got a few other ideas too. Um, oh, I wanted to ask actually. Do you think acting and like putting on these kinds of like, do you think there's any role for acting in poker, or did you learn anything from it? Um, I think that a you bit. I think not necessarily specifically from acting, but just in terms of like how to be the host of a game, how to make the you know environment friendly. And it started way back when I started playing really at the Bellagio. Maury Escondani, who Maury you know is now the big producer guy of all the shows. Another guy named Lenny Martin and another guy named Mickey Coleman. They started the Limit Hold'em game, eighty-one sixty. It was they're all pros basically, 
and they'd start the game. But then, like, any time a newcomer came, like, the way in which they treated him was not patronizing, was not condescending, was really just friendly. They made it a fun environment. They joked around with him. They threw some straddles in here and there. They made the game fun. When the guy left, you know, they had a conversation. It wasn't this predatory idea of, like, let's suck this guy dry. I mean, obviously, they are the providers in the game. But, but they understood that, like, as pros, we need to make this fun, right? Or else they won't want to come back. If we had seven guys, like, back then in hoodies and sunglasses and everybody, like, playing 30 seconds slow, like, this random guy is like, I'm just going to go play blackjack. You know what I mean? Like, I don't, I don't, this isn't fun. So I learned early on, like, that aspect of, you know, making games good. And listen, when everybody's loose and having fun and joking around, having a few drinks, the game's better, Right. And you're probably going to make more money anyway. Even if you are throwing in a straddle here and there or making a couple bad plays, so what? You're, you're doing it for the long... Like you spoke about earlier, the short-term versus the long-term. Sometimes in these cases, even though you're giving up a little EV by making a bad play now, if you do it and it's funny and you show it, ah, seven-deuce offsuit, ha, ha, ha. It's, it's a good moment. It creates a positive experience for the, right, for the kind of players that you want to play with, you know, the people who have expendable income. You just want to have some fun. Yeah, I mean, I think also for the sake of themselves, also, and for the table, I mean, it seems as though many of the professionals can't seem to get beyond this idea of, like, short-term versus long-term doesn't just, like, fall into, like, the strict category of, like, every monetary decision you make. Like, if you spend, like, an hour, like, calm, uh, you know, the, figuring out, you know, if you should bet 35% of the time uh, or, like, 55% of the time in this, like, neutral EV situation, like, that's not plus EV. Um, like for your life. I, and... I think part of what happened was online poker, as much as I love it, it sort of created like an antisocial environment where, like I said, when I, when I did this at Bellagio, you saw the people, you were talking to them, you were having conversations, right? Where with online mm -hmm. poker, it, was, it wasn't so, it wasn't, um, what's the word? There, was, there wasn't that social aspect of it. So what I, I remember this, when I started playing in 2011, I was starting to grind and relearn the game at one in 200. I was playing one in 200, no limit online. And like, I, remember, I would remember, like, you know, I would sit down, everybody would jump in the games, right? And then, like, as soon as I would quit, right, there'd be two guys stuck in the blinds. And they'd say, do you want to check it down? Right? I'm like, you won't even play one hand at neutral EV, like, if I'm not in the game and you think I'm, like, the big live one? It's like, you like, think about visually, optically, how that looks. Imagine, and I saw this once at Bellagio, and I was appalled. Imagine you're, like, you have this random recreational guy who's a lot of fun and just comes to play, and it's ten-handed. He quits, and all another nine people go, yep, game's over, right in his face, right? Luckily, I have, you know, thick skin, and I didn't care. I was laughing because eventually, you know, I did get quite good at the game, and it was three-handed, and nobody wanted to sit anymore. But, it takes a lot. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, but, but no, but just to close the point, the point is, is like, I have that thick skin, but think about how your actions will impact somebody like that, and like, you quit immediately. Like, you can't even play neutral EV for 15 minutes till the guy leaves like you know and that comes i think from that sort of impersonal aspect of online poker yeah yeah i guess the conditioning of like of, or at least like taking away the whole social aspect taking away the whole feelings things making people robots of sorts um i think the future it would be interesting if they'd have more collaboration between the pros and the businessmen like for example in the triton event uh i think you did play in it actually the triton event the 200k no, I um, didn't. I love it. It's a great concept. Yeah, but even in that one, there wasn't so much collaboration. But, like, imagine if, like, the pros actually helped the businessmen somehow or, like, 
they they made it like a bit more of a team thing. That would be quite a new a new concept, and I think that would entice the the businessmen a bit more because like why not give them more of a chance? Like why not? I like, love this idea, Jungle, and it reminds me of a format. I don't know if you've ever played. I think you might have, where you played sort of partners, where you know you play one street, and the other player plays the next street, kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like this idea. This could be great. Like you could do a tournament, maybe make it six handed because you don't want too many people. But like you have a pro and you have a businessman and you hand the cards, you know, you like jungle man, you play free flop, businessman plays flop, you play turn, he plays river. So you have to sort of combine thoughts and think about the game and you're going to help the businessman become a much better player too. And it would create like a unique environment. We did that before um, for a tournament like the Caesars Cup. And I was partnered with Phil Helmuth once and that was difficult. It was difficult to be a starter because he put me in some spots. I'm like, why am I here? Why am I, why am I in this turn after check, check when you're supposed to bet the flop? Like, ah, so it's, it's really fun. And it can create like a lot of, that could be very dramatic actually, because you could have arguments, right? You could be, it would even be fun against pros where you get pitted with somebody and they do something and you're like, what is, what, this is so stupid. Why'd you, why'd you do this? It's good drama. This sounds funny actually. Uh, yeah. I'd be, I mean, I'm a little curious to be partnered with him just because like, I think people have really like pigeonholed the idea of how the game can be played. Uh, there are a lot of other possibilities that could work. Um, like, I mean, you see them more in different kinds of games, but people just have this, are just too stuck in this idea. Okay, you got to bet one third pot on the flop, and then you got to, you know, you, you polarize your range on the turn. But you could actually do some things, depending on some extreme situations, where you could like raise turns a lot more or whatever. It just doesn't really happen that much uh and i mean i can think of some situations where like icm can really change things if people like really go hard at exploiting um like it could be really optimal just no one's really exploit exploited these kinds of possibilities um you make me think of this new term this new lingo that i hear a lot of the time when these guys are talking and they're like talking about a hand you're like um yeah you're allowed to you're allowed to like you're allowed to have King 8X. You're allowed to have like your suited kings and like some 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 offsuit broadways here. You're allowed. You're allowed. Like, what do you mean you're allowed? Like, you're allowed to have whatever the fuck you want to have in any spot, right? But when you say the word allowed, you don't realize that subconsciously they're essentially being a, what I call a slave to the sim. Nope. Solver says. Solver says. I, you know, I should do this. Solver says. I'm like, okay, well, you know what? My brain says, old man Johnny over there has got it. So Solver can tell me I need to be calling here, but uh, I beg to differ uh, with my human brain. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like that stuff for sure. No, you're 100 percent right. Uh, there's like it's definitely, especially tournaments, like the Solver stuff. Uh, I don't think it. I mean, it applies, but it's it's not the kind of thing you want to like focus too strictly on. Uh, Dan, uh, don't have too much more time, but I got to ask you some more uh, questions. I might uh, you may or may not be ready for. Okay. Um, nothing, nothing bad or anything. Uh, I'll take it. I'm open. Okay. Any question works. You would take bad questions? Any question. I, I don't. There's not a question anyone could ask me that I wouldn't answer. Well, that gives me that tempts me a little bit. Now I'm like <laughs> thinking, wait, maybe I should like try try something a little spicier. Um, maybe I'm too soft. Maybe that's my problem. <laughs> uh, well, the first one is uh, Phil Homeyuth is blank. Fill in the blank. Uh, hilarious. All right. <laughs> it makes me laugh. Well, now, I don't know. I find him funny. That's very democratic. What's your <laughs> biggest? What's your biggest pet peeve? 
My biggest pet peeve in poker for sure is the, you know, people wasting time, you know, like tanking for no, absolutely no reason. You know, I understand it's part of like, you know, bubble play and all this sort of stuff. But like, you know, the random guys who are just, you know, taking to the extreme in every single, like when you call on King, King four, you check call the flop on King, King four. Okay. And the turns a deuce. Just check. <laughs> you, there's no, you're not leading here. Just check. Why do you have to wait 30 seconds to keep balanced? Oh, speaking of, I got to tell you, this one, this one, will, this one will tilt you because you play mixed games. So this actually happened at the World Series. This hand, this hand happened at the World Series. There's a guy named Anton Aldman who was a German and he was, you know, new to this stuff. Stud eight, right? Folded around to him. He has an ace up. Last position. He takes mm-hmm. 30 seconds and then he raises. Okay. The, <laughs> the bring in, the bring in with the three calls. The three catches a jack. He catches a suited four. Okay. He takes another 30 seconds, another 30 seconds to bet ace four suited against the, the jack three, right? The guy calls. On fifth street, the three jack catches a nine. He catches an ace. So he has ace, ace, four showing. He takes 30 seconds and then bets. And I say to him, I said, why, why are you wasting time with that? He's like, oh, I'm just trying to you know, not give anything away. I don't want to give away any tells. I say, fucking board is a tell. You're, you could have two napkins in the hole. It's like automatic. You know what I mean? Like stuff like that. You know, it's like, ugh. Tilted. That would tilt me. Oh, and um, um, a little uh, food for thought. Maybe an ace isn't always a uh, raise versus a low card on stud eight. Sure, fine, but you're not going to fold, right? I, I, I get. So, okay, sure, pre-flop, sure. But what about on the fourth street and fifth street? There's like no no world where you're not betting, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I'm not. I'm not defending his play. I'm just like, yeah, throwing throwing an idea out there that. Uh, I just, uh, you know, I wanted to spice things up a little bit in a certain way, but yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously, this is this is just making it miserable for everyone, and it's just, it's not good. I, I like, no one's like getting sick timing tells off of like twenty, maybe even like fifteen second difference. It's gonna be like super hard to, um, but I guess, I mean, maybe at final tables and bubbles and stuff, it could matter. All right, so what, um, what's your last Google search? My last Google search. Um, so stupid. Michael Fisher hockey. I'm a hockey nerd. I do fantasy hockey stuff. And this kid's 18, 19 years old, and I can't find any information on him because he's injured. But and he's on my team, and that's it. Yeah, that's like that's how nerd. That's how nerdy I get when I'm not playing poker. I just dive into fantasy hockey. Oh yeah, yeah. I remember that you're into fantasy sports. I forgot about that. You got you got all that stuff going on. Really, I was like, I was like, whoa. There's like so much information on this guy. Um, <laughs> I mean, I know you too, but like, uh, I didn't know all this. I forgot about fantasy sports completely. Um, that was a quick one. So far, your answers have been really, um, have been, have not been that spicy, but, uh, but whatever. They're still good. Uh, okay. So what is, uh, let's see. Uh, do you, uh, what would you, what's your favorite meal? Favorite meal? I mean, I kind of like like falafel and French fries, <laughs> like in a pita. That's decent. But like, what else? I mean, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, it's pretty boring. But like, I kind of like, I kind of like overnight oats for for breakfast. Super boring. Super boring. <laughs> I mean, yeah, why not? Um, okay, what's your guilty pleasure? Guilty pleasures, probably trashy reality TV shows. 
like we watch with, you know, my wife likes them too, like watching the Kardashians and stuff like that, like kind of other train wreck type shows that, you know, not like Jerry Springer, but down that vein, yeah. I think I've watched some of those too. I've, I've watched uh, uh, Jersey Shore. Oh, I love yeah. Jersey Shore. Oh, yeah. Yeah, buddy. I love a good Jersey Shore this time of year. <laughs> love that show. Never miss one. <laughs> Maybe I should go Guido for... Uh, is is, that, is that politically correct? I don't know. Maybe I should just no, Guido's it. fine. I think they call themselves Guidos, so I think we're allowed to, but I don't know. It's 2022. Maybe you're not. So I, I don't know anymore. <laughs> But that would, be, that would be a good one. Just turned uh, Jersey Shore for a day. Um, well, okay, biggest uh, regret. Last question. It's funny. I just tweeted it. And it was a sad... I mean, it's, I just tweeted it because I wanted to get it off my chest. But you know when you're a teenager, you're, you can be an asshole. Got in a fight with my mother, who my mother... I love my mother. She loves me. We had, you know, like I was a mama's boy. But I remember I was like six. 16 or so and we got in a fight and she was eating and um I, I wanted to make i wanted to i was angry and i called her like a fat pig or something right and i watched right. my mother like cry like she was crying as she was eating and i felt like the worst human really being. yeah it's the meanest thing i've like as far as like the meanest thing i ever did like so looking back like i know it's a small thing but like um making your mother cry like that was mean and i hated it and i was like it still haunts me, you know, like she's passed since she's passed in 2009. And of course we made amends and everything like that. And you know, she's a mother. She knows that teenagers say dumb things, but like, I'm just looking back and I say like, yeah, you know, dumb stuff like that. You know, you know but yeah, that's, that, that's, that's the one that just sort of popped in my head and I tweeted about it recently. That was a good one. That was like, yeah. I mean, it's one of these stupid things. Like when you're a kid, you just get like mad at your parents, but it's like the dumbest thing. Uh, because they're doing all these things for you, but you're like so focused on like the things you don't have that you forget all this other stuff. Um, yeah, I mean, I had perfect parents. I like they were so great. Like I was so blessed. Like they shaped the person that I became in my life. From the mine were pretty good. Oh, excuse me. No, no, it's okay. From the perspective of generosity, you know, and you know, being easygoing and friendly and that sort of thing. Like, yeah, I got I got good moral guidelines from my parents for sure. Um. Mine too. I did do something similar to you when I was maybe like 15 or so. Um, yeah, I was a little shit back in the day. Or a little bit of a little shit anyway. I had some issues. Everyone has. Kids will be kids. Yeah. Uh, well, you are the kid poker. The, 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 the whatever. The unisection of uh, the kid. The kid and the, the wise man and the, uh, and the internet um kid the internet kids maybe a little kid inside and the the wise uh old school style as well would you say that's accurate a little bit of everything yeah i like to stay up to date with what's going on um and i think that's like one of the secrets of longevity right like we sort of talked about this earlier where once you get to the point where you think you've got it all figured out like oh i got poker figured out that's exactly the moment where everybody else starts to catch up to you and pass you yeah i agree it's like one of the biggest um I was actually thinking to make some content on that myself, but it's one of the biggest meta mistakes is you think you know everything. You know, Liv Bree, he did a great video bit on the uh, straw man versus steel man argument. Put it on What's your that? Instagram. He did a video, like a straw man argument and a steel man argument. You know that? what that is? No. Well, watch the video. You'll like it. But if essentially straw man arguments is what happens on the internet, right? People mm -hmm. have this one talking point and they're like, yeah, but what about this and this? And then you have two camps that are both 100% right 
and nobody's listening to each other. And just like right. they have no uh, capacity. Yeah. And a Steelman argument is more like solid and a Steelman. Watch your video. It's really, really good. I'll, I'll send it to you when I find it. Yeah. Uh, this happens all the time. Uh, really, really all the time. Like, it's crazy. It's like very prolific. Uh, I see it constantly. I'm just like, what the fuck's going on? And it drives me crazy. But anyway, yeah, I thought I'd point that out. Anyway. Um, Daniel, any last words? Just keep being you, Jungle Man. You are you are perfect the way that you are. You're a great asset to the poker community. I love the characters that you put together. I love how much you know how much passion you have for the game. I love the way that you think about the game and just keep doing what you're doing. And good luck with the podcast. Thank you, and uh, you too. Do you have any uh, anything, anyone you want to call out, or any uh, <laughs> any predictions, or any uh, Macho Man type uh, things? Uh, declarations or anything like that that right you want to get right now i'm at peace and i'm just going to be focused on getting in that pgt championship and oh yeah 2023 that's my year or when i get it all in i'm gonna win oh yeah baby we're gonna put the chips in and the chips are coming back all the chips in yours too baby oh yeah